In other words, an interpretation should be given for the benefit of the body so they can understand what had been uttered. He would go on to say that when it comes to speaking in tongues, he cautioned them, he had counseled them, let it be at two or at the most three people. One at a time, he says, and let someone interpret. In other words, two or three people should speak in tongues, not all at the same time, but individually, and let somebody interpret what each has said so the church may be edified. Well, tonight, by way of just bringing this series to a conclusion, if you have your outline, I've entitled the topic tonight, Are the Gifts of the Holy Spirit for Today? Because we need to appreciate that there are sincere believers in the body of Christ the world over who believe that what we've been speaking about this last three weeks, the gifts of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit manifesting himself when we come together as a local church, there are sincere believers the world over who do not believe such is for today. They don't believe that such is to be expected today. Let me say this. I have no doubt there are people here and you've had a powerful encounter with God. And you can testify to the faithfulness of God and how God has come through for you and answered prayer. But we need to recognize this and we mustn't be naive. As powerful as a testimony is, And thank God for testimonies. As powerful and as real and as personal as that is, there are sincere believers who will want more than your testimony. They will say, unless you can show me in the scriptures, I won't believe. I'm not going to accept that. And rightfully so. Because the word of God is given to us to test everything. It is given to us as wisdom from God to help us live our lives in this fallen world. And we owe it to our brothers and sisters to show them from the scripture and articulate to them from the word of God why we believe what we believe. And so tonight with that foundation... I want us to consider the question, are the gifts of the Holy Spirit for today? If they're not, I've wasted my time this last three weeks. One of the ministries that is so needed in this hour is that of the apologist. We live in a world today And the technology that is available today was not there 20, 30 years ago. It used to be you could just simply preach the gospel and tell people they need to be saved or tell them why you don't believe in abortion and homosexuality and evolution and and so on. But it's now come to the stage that when you go down that line, people will then begin to open up a can of worms and come back to you and say, Well, that's your opinion. That's what you say the Bible says. But how do you know that the Bible is even real? How do you know that the Bible can be trusted? 
And so if ever we needed the ministry of the apologist, today we need it. Someone who can defend their faith. Defend the word of God. And I, I, I was just with somebody the other night and that really hit hard to me. We all, as believers entrusted with a great commission, really need to, as Peter tells us, be able to give an answer for the faith which we have and what we believe in. And in some way we're going to adopt that tonight as we look at the subject of the gifts of the Spirit. I'm going to look at two passages of Scripture that are commonly used by sincere Christians who don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. And then I'm going to look at a number of objections, questions that you will encounter by people who, who don't believe in such as being for today. And you see in your outline, and just by way of, of terminology, just to familiarize yourself, the whole belief system or doctrine, if you like, of the gifts of the Spirit not being for today is called cessationism. And a person who espouses to that doctrine is called a cessationist. In other words, an individual who is a cessationist says the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. That's where the, the term comes from, to cease. The opposite of a cessationist is a continuationist. And the doctrine they believe in is called continuationism. And a continuationist says the gifts of the Spirit continue. And so you have the continuationist in one camp, the cessationist on the other. And tonight we want to appeal to those who would find themselves in the cessationist camp. Laying aside our testimony, we want to be able to show them and articulate from the Word of God why the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today and to be expected and sought after today. Now this is not a theological term, but I just want to say this just to broaden our understanding a little bit. Within the cessationist camp, and the, 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 the general cessationist will say, gifts of the Spirit aren't for today. But within that cessationism camp, you have what I would call a cupboard cessationist. Now, that's not a theological term. That's just me saying it. A cupboard cessationist. You know in your kitchen you've got cupboards and you put cutlery and whatnot in it? A cupboard cessationist is someone who'll say, yes, the gifts of the Spirit are for today. Don't ever prophesy when you come to my church. Don't lay hands on the sick and pray for healing in my church. And whatever you do, don't even think about speaking in tongues in my church. You get the, the picture. Cupboard cessationist. And then there's what you might call a seatbelt cessationist. Seatbelt is an important safety feature and we should always wear them when we're in a car or in an airplane. But a seatbelt cessationist is someone who says all the right things but never goes anywhere because they want to play it safe. Cautious. Tonight I pray as we let the word of God speak 
that any fear or inhibition any of us may have in moving forward will be removed. There will be a release tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Well, the first passage that is commonly used to say that the gifts of the Spirit are not for today is in the latter part of 1 Corinthians 13. You know that chapter on love? You hear it read at weddings and such like. Have it in your outline. We're just going to read the the few verses towards the end of it. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And in this passage, it does say, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. Nobody argues about that. The crux of the matter is when. When will tongues cease? When will prophecy pass away? The cessationist, in looking at this verse, will say that when Paul refers to the perfect, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The cessationist says that the perfect is a reference to the complete New Testament. In other words, because we have the New Testament, the perfect has already come. And therefore, the gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, prophesying, have ceased. They've passed away. Cessationist says the perfect means the complete New Testament, the complete canon of Scripture, your Bible. I want to suggest that that analysis is not accurate. And I want to say it for a number of reasons. First of all, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter of love, it was not his intention to prove or disprove the gifts of the Spirit are for today. That was not his intention. What his intention was, was to contrast love, which is eternal, with the gifts of the Spirit that are temporal. That's the whole crux of his intention as he draws 1 Corinthians 13 to a close. What did Paul mean? By that term, perfect. One important principle in interpreting Scripture is what's known as authorial intent. And what that simply means is what a passage of Scripture meant to its author 
is what it means to you and me today. In other words, the author here is the Apostle Paul. He's writing a letter to the Corinthian church. And what these words in 1 Corinthians 13 meant to Paul is what they mean to you and me today. Now, obviously, we live in the 21st century. He did not. And so the application, obviously, will be somewhat different. But the original meaning does not change. So whatever these words meant to Paul is what they mean to you and me today. And I want to suggest to you that Paul did not envisage what you and I call the New Testament. Totally alien to his understanding. Yes, he was aware when he wrote Corinthians, he was writing the commandment of the Lord. But the notion of what we call the New Testament was completely alien to his understanding. And so because that is not what Paul was referring to, then it cannot mean that to you and me today. Let's consider and try and understand exactly what he did mean. As Paul concludes 1 Corinthians 13, he's describing two states of existence. He talks about that which is in part and that which is perfect or complete. He's describing a partial existence and he's contrasting it with a complete existence existence. Two states of existence. Notice he says when that which is perfect comes. When the perfect comes the partial will pass away. When the perfect comes not only is he describing two states of existence but he's also contrasting the present with the future. He says, when the perfect comes, the perfect, whatever it meant to Paul, was clearly future to him. When the perfect comes, then that which is partial will pass away. Describing two states of existence, and he's contrasting the present with the future. And then he uses the analogy of childhood... And he contrasts that with adulthood. And he basically says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and so on. But when I became a man, I gave away, or I gave up childish things. In other words, what he's saying is, there is behavior that's appropriate to childhood. There's behavior that's appropriate to adulthood. What's not appropriate is childhood behavior in adulthood. But again, two states of existence, childhood, adulthood, and two periods of time, present and the future. And he goes on in verse 12 just to bring that to a conclusion. Notice the, the language of the tenses. He says, for now, now, present, we see in a mirror dimly, but then, future, Face to face. Now present he says. I know in part. Then future. I shall know fully. Even as I am fully known. 
two states of existence, partial, complete. Two periods of time, present and the future. What's he talking about? What does he mean by complete? What does he mean by perfect? I've already suggested, given his intention, I don't believe he's referring to what we call the New Testament. But somewhere in the future, Paul says, I'm going to see, we're going to see, face to face. We now see in a mirror dimly, but then, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then in the future, we're going to see face to face. Just put that in 21st century language. It's, he's describing the difference between looking at a photograph and looking at a person. Note the terminology face to face. He's saying tongues will pass away. Prophecies will cease. Not now, but then when we see face to face. Face to face. That's a term that occurs in our New Testament. John in his third epistle uses that word, that phrase, face to face, as he writes his letter. He says, I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Talking about seeing a person face to face. I think what Paul is talking about is sometime in the future Seeing a person face to face. A lot of the language in the New Testament is quoted from the Old Testament. You remember whenever Jacob in Genesis 32 wrestled with the angel at Peniel and then discovered the Lord himself. What did he say? Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face. And there are a few other references. I will not look at them, but I've put them on the outline. I want to suggest to you that when Paul says that prophecies will cease and tongues will pass away, in the future when we see face to face, he's making a reference to Christ's return fits perfectly because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7 Paul says don't be lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ in other words he is saying that the church should not be lacking in the gifts of the spirit while they wait for the Lord's coming and that completely complements what he says at the end of 1 Corinthians 13 about seeing face to face. The perfect, I want to suggest to you, is not a reference to the New Testament. Didn't mean that to Paul. Can't mean that to us. The perfect is when we see the Lord in the future face to face. Because that hasn't happened yet. Gifts of the Spirit 
are to continue. The second passage we want to look at is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. I have it in your outline. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And again, just like the previous passage, Paul's intention in writing these verses is not to prove or disprove the gifts of the Spirit as being for today. But cessationists will take this passage to suggest the gifts of the Spirit aren't for today. And the reasoning behind that is that this passage talks about the foundation of the church being that of the apostles and the prophets. And the apostles and prophets were people who had the ministry of the miraculous. They exercised the gifts of the Spirit. And because the foundation has been led, therefore their ministries and the gifts of the Spirit they were given no longer exist because the foundation of the church has been complete. That's basically the cessationist argument. And again, just like 1 Corinthians 13, what Paul is simply saying in these verses is that the Gentiles have been granted inclusion into the church of Jesus Christ, into the household of God. The gospel initially went to the Jew. But what Paul is telling us here, through Christ, the middle wall of partition has been removed and Jewish believer, Gentile believer, have become one new man in Christ. That's his argument. Gentiles have been granted inclusion into the body of Christ, into the people of God. The people of God, the household of God, which is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Here's where I think the flaw in the cessationist argument is. Using the analogy of construction or building, the apostles and the prophets were foundational to the church. But whenever Paul writes these verses, and you'll notice carefully, Notice that he talks about members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And then he comes to the end of the verse by saying, in him you also are being built. He talks about the Jew and Gentile, the body of Christ, being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and you're also being built built. In other words, what that tells us is that the foundation has been complete. You wouldn't be building a second layer on an incomplete foundation. The foundation has to be finished before the next layer can be built. 
Any builder will tell you that. You build the foundation first before you start building upwards. And when Paul writes these words, the implication is that the foundation has already been complete. Now the cessationist says, the foundation is that of the apostles and the prophets, and because the gifts of the Spirit were given to them, because the foundation is finished, their ministries are no longer required, and the gifts of the Spirit are obsolete. But here's the problem. If that is so, when Paul writes to the Ephesian church, in chapter 1, verse 1 of this letter, he refers to himself as an apostle. Even though the foundation has been finished, and the next layer has been built and is under construction, he still refers to himself. Can you see the, 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 the discrepancy? The cessationist says, the apostles, the prophets' ministry have ceased because the foundation's been built. And yet it's been built, it's been complete. When Paul writes this, the second layer metaphorically speaking, is already under construction, and yet he still calls himself an apostle. Yes, it's true that the apostles and the prophets had a unique ministry in launching the church, if you like. They were given a revelation this unique group of people were given a revelation that Gentiles would be included in the people of God. I haven't put it in your outline, but let me just read this to you in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul writes, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Ephesians 3, 4-6. These apostles and prophets had that revelation that nobody else had. But to suggest that the gifts of the Spirit given to them have now been rendered obsolete because the foundation is complete... This does not add up because Paul still calls himself an apostle as he writes to them. But secondly, the cessationist argument would then suggest that every time the gift of prophecy is exercised, it's adding to the foundation. Last week we looked at how Paul's friends prophesied to him. How Agabus prophesied to him. How the Corinthian church were encouraged to prophesy. The Galatian church were, were exercising the gifts of the Spirit. Does that mean every time someone prophesied, the foundation was being extended? Because you see, if every time, according to the cessationist thinking, every time someone would prophesy, the foundation would keep being extended. If the ministry of prophetic uh, utterances was solely foundational. You'd have an ever extending foundation and the church would not be being built. 
Do you see the problem? And yet Paul says, and we looked at this last week, time and time again, the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Prophecy builds up the church. It does not extend the already completed foundation. It builds up the church. And so, yes, the apostles and prophets had a unique role in the foundation of the church and to launch the church, if you will. But their ministry was of the gifts of the Spirit given to them was not rendered obsolete once the foundation was complete. Because Paul clearly demonstrated that in writing these words, the Jews and Gentile believers were already being included. The church was being built on an already complete foundation and he still called himself an apostle and encouraged the Corinthians, the Galatians, to prophesy. Not to extend a complete foundation, but to build up the building, the body of Christ. Those are the two texts that I wanted to look at tonight. Just a few objections you may encounter. And maybe you've been thinking these yourself. One common objection to disprove the validity of the gifts of the Spirit as being for today is that prophesying is adding to the Bible. We just there a moment ago talked about how cessationists would say it's adding to the foundation or, or it's not needed for the foundation anymore. But prophesying is adding to the Bible. Really that objection is somewhat of a myth. And it's based on a misunderstanding because you see the cessationist who brings this objection does not make a distinction between the Old Testament prophet and the New Testament gift of prophecy. They fail to make that distinction. The Old Testament prophet, people like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel and Isaiah, whenever they spoke, they were speaking under divine authority and the words which they spoke were the very words of God. And when a prophet under the old covenant spoke and it didn't come to pass, he was stoned to death because the Lord's name was dishonored. The Old Testament prophets spoke the very words of God and whenever he wrote those words down, they were scripture. An Old Testament prophet writing under divine authority was writing scripture. Now, the New Testament gift of prophecy is very different as we looked at it last week. Do you remember? How we saw that the New Testament gift of prophecy begins with a revelation. God impressing something upon you. A dream, a picture, a, 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 a scripture verse. And the moment you share that, you are prophesying. Remember that? And we saw also how that, that revelation needs to go through that filter of being interpreted before being applied and spoken. Last week we saw 
how that Paul's friend spoke to him through the Spirit, spoke prophetically to him and told him not to go to Jerusalem. You remember? And Paul disobeyed them. Now if they were prophesying and if the ministry of the gift of prophecy in the New Testament was equivalent to that under the Old Covenant, Paul would not have disobeyed them because he would effectively have been disobeying Scripture. The New Testament gift of prophecy was the equivalent of that of the Old Testament prophet. New Testament prophecy would be Scripture and Paul would not have disobeyed his friends, but he did. New Testament prophecy begins with a revelation interpreted and then communicated and as we saw last week it must be tested it must be tested test all things Paul wrote to the Thessalonians but quench not the spirit prophetic word New Testament prophecy there's such a, a, a simplicity about it and yet it's so powerful that God could impress upon you a verse from the Bible for you to share with someone that could just speak powerfully into their life and situation. I would confidently say that there are preachers who would consider themselves to be cessationists and not believe the gift of prophecy. Yet I would venture to say there have been times in their preaching a Sunday sermon when suddenly a thought has come to them. Something they hadn't put in their outline to share. It's just came to them and they've spoken it out and it's blessed someone. If God can do that in a sermon, he can do that on an individual level when you're praying with someone, when you're talking with someone. You might be here and you might be thinking, you know, that's just too much of a hassle. Prophecy, you get a revelation and then you, you have to interpret it before you share it and whatnot. That's much hard work. Don't be quick to dismiss that. This book, the Bible, God's Word, this is God's revelation. Do you agree with me? This is God's revelation, his revealed word. And yet, I've heard people preach from that well-known passage in 1 Thessalonians. You, you, you know the verse. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive will be left, caught up, and forever be with the Lord. You've heard that verse preached. That verse, God's revelation, it's from his revealed word. And yet, there are preachers communicating God's revelation from 1 Thessalonians, interpret it. Some see that verse to speak of a secret pre-tribulation rapture. While others see it to be a reference to Christ's second coming. 
God's revelation with two interpretations. Now, they both can't be right. Yet we don't write preachers off because of how they interpret God's revelation. The gift of prophecy is a revelation not on par with the Bible. Let me, hasten, let me just make that clear. But the principle is the same. It's God revealing something to you be interpreted and shared to bring blessing and encouragement to somebody else. Another argument that people will say about the gifts of the Spirit is that they were given to the apostles simply because they wrote Scripture. The problem with that argument is there were other people in the New Testament who God used in the gifts of the Spirit who weren't apostles, who didn't write scripture. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, did many miracles, but he wasn't an apostle. He didn't write any scripture. Philip the Evangelist, that gospel campaign in Samaria, Many who were lame healed, demons coming out. Incredible miracles, but he wasn't an apostle. He didn't write any scripture. Then there was that unknown individual who was casting out demons in the gospels and the disciples had encouraged this person to follow them and he didn't. And Jesus said, look, whoever does a miracle in my name, don't consider that one unimportant or take lightly of that situation. In the church in Corinth and Galatia who were experiencing miracles. They weren't apostles. Ordinary church members like you and me. And you've probably heard this. Some people say, well, why do people who have the gift of healing not go and empty the hospital wards? If you were here, the second Sunday we, we looked at the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, I pointed out that the Scripture does not speak about the gift of healing. It speaks about gifts of healing, plural. In other words, there's not one individual who has the gift of healing that they can heal virtually every kind of sickness at will. There are gifts. And an important truth about the gifts of the Spirit, as, as outlined in 1 Corinthians 12, is that the Holy Spirit, as He wills, apportions to each one a gift individually. In other words, we have to acknowledge and make room for the sovereignty of God when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. You cannot turn them on like a water tap. God sovereignly, when we come together, desiring the gifts of the Spirit, He ultimately decides who to use as a vessel for that manifestation of His Spirit to come forth. We desire, make ourselves available while respecting His sovereignty. Do you remember Jesus at the, the pool of Bethesda? Scripture says there was a great multitude of sick people there. 
Yet he only went to one person and healed them. And Jesus gave us that pattern, if you like, that model of intimacy with the Father. When he said the Son can do nothing of himself but only that which he sees the Father do. Clearly on that day at the pool of Bethesda, he saw God just wanting to heal one person. Carried out. The Apostle Paul, God used in, in the ministry of healing and miraculous. But yet, what about his friend Trophimus? He left sick at a place called Miletus. Timothy, whom he wrote two letters to, had frequent stomach ailments. Just proves the importance of recognizing God's sovereignty because if the great apostle Paul had the gift of healing, he could heal at will, and his two friends certainly wouldn't be sick. Some people say that the reason why Paul couldn't heal Timothy or Trophimus was because, you see, the New Testament was coming to nearly completion, and so the gifts of the Spirit were sort of diminishing they they were they were losing their momentum but that argument doesn't work because you see the book of acts Paul was shipwrecked on the island of Malta dead for the the father-in-law's the, the, the chief of the island his father-in-law and God healed him and healed every sick person on the island the gifts of the Spirit were on their way out, you would expect very few people to be healed there. And yet everybody was healed on that occasion because of God's sovereignty. I want to suggest to you, there is nowhere in the New Testament that suggests that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. When you think about it, the very first passage we looked at in 1 Corinthians 13. If, that, if Paul was saying that at the end of chapter 13, you would think that would be discussion closed. And yet the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, he starts speaking again about the gifts of the Spirit. You would think chapter 13 would be the, the final statement on the matter. But it isn't because he's not telling us that they've ceased. Corinthians 14.1 says, Pursue love, earnestly desire. Earnestly desire. The word desire there is a Greek word, zelu, from which we get the word zealous. And it literally means to be red hot. Are you red hot in your quest to be used by God in the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Are you earnestly desiring to make yourself available to be used by God to manifest His power, His presence? Whenever we come together or whoever we meet in that world out there in the marketplace, pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy, because prophesy builds people up. It encourages them. 
But notice Paul's admonition, first of all, before you earnestly desire these gifts, he says, pursue love. Pursue love. God's love. You hear Christians say this today, and they probably think it's very trendy, but it's totally unbiblical. People say, I love Jesus, but I have a problem with the church. I love Christ, but I don't love his church. And people who say that, I would suggest don't love Jesus to the extent they think they do. Because you see, if we truly love him, we will love what he loves. And he loves his church. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The church is not an organization, it's an organism where the head in heaven is joined to the body on earth. And as Paul using that analogy in 1 Corinthians 12 of the human body to, do, to describe the workings in the body of Christ, if you hurt yourself, if you cut yourself, Ian is registered ahead. And the Lord Jesus Christ is our great high priest who's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He wants to pour in his love and healing through one another to minister to each other. You see, it's as we pursue love that the climate is created that is conducive for the Holy Spirit to move in power. That's why I said the very first night how the Holy Spirit as a person can be wounded, he can be grieved by our mouths, our attitudes. But if we pursue love, the climate is ripe for him to come and manifest his presence and release his power. I said it last week and the week before, and I'll say it again the church has become subnormal. When it becomes normal, it looks abnormal. Are you willing to look abnormal so that you can move, make yourself available to be used by God in the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Are you a cupboard cessationist? If so, come out of the cupboard. Are you a seatbelt cessationist? If so, unbuckle your seatbelt. Are you ready to begin to move in the power of the Spirit? To boldly proclaim the gospel, to prophesy, to pray for the sick, to cast out demons. That is normal, healthy, New Testament Christianity. I want all that God has for me. How about you? Come to a close as we just bow our heads and just wait upon him. Just think about what we've been looking at the last few weeks and just that challenge tonight. Are you prepared? Are you willing to be used? Do you earnestly desire the gifts of the Holy Spirit?